It's good to be back with you. Several of you have asked how vacation was, um, and, it, and it's, it's good. It's vacation, right? Uh, a little vacay never hurt anybody, um, and, uh, and it, it was good. I think the kids had a really good time, and uh, uh, there, were, there were some good things uh, that the Lord gave along the way. So thank you for asking, and uh, thanks for, I guess, missing us and, uh, and thinking of us. Uh, thanks, thanks for that. Uh, many of you have asked how, the, how things went, so I appreciate that very much. Uh, you know, if you want to know uh, the character of a person, just put them under a little pressure, right? I mean, many, many things come to be revealed when pressure is applied. You come to know who people really are when they're in a squeeze. Now, that's really why we're talking about this series, Pressure Points, uh, because we all know, all of us sitting in this room recognize that there are points in life when, when we're under e- enormous pressure. We feel it. It's emotional pressure or mental pressure, maybe even physical pressure. And we're going to find out who we are in Christ, in, their, in our character, when we are under tremendous pressure. And the Lord provides illustration. When we are under tremendous pressure, just be thinking. You see, we, we want to invite Christ-like community. We want to do that one neighbor at a time, but we can only do that if we respond well, like Christ would, when we're under tremendous pressure. You see, if we want to build Christ-like community, we actually have to be Christ-like. And and the presence of Christ is going to come out most, hopefully, when we're under the greatest amount of pressure, when all the chips are down, when all the weight is on us, when things are not going well, uh, when we're, we're in a crunch, that's when we're hopeful as a community that God's going to show up. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit growing in us and through us, those are the moments that we're hoping uh, that God shows up through us. That's why we're doing this series. And this morning, we're at a particular tough pressure point. We're at one of those dark, dark days. Maybe think of the darkest day that you've experienced up to this point in your life. Think of a time when your disobedience has led to you thinking, maybe it would be better if things ended right now than if things went forward because now everybody knows. Can you think of a time maybe perhaps as a child And your parent caught you doing something that you knew that they had asked you not to do, but now you're in really big trouble and you think in that moment, I I think I would rather jump off a cliff than face my mom and dad. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Maybe they just caught you smoking in the backyard. Today it'd be vaping. Maybe you're vaping in the backyard. Maybe your mom saw you looking at inappropriate images on your phone or in a magazine. And in that moment, you think, oh, I just, I would rather die than have to face my mother. 
Maybe it was that uh, a lie that you have carried along with you for years has now been exposed. And you have been living a lie that only you and God and maybe a few others knew about, but the rest of your community didn't have any idea. And now the lie has been exposed and you think, oh, the shame and the guilt is too much. And the darkness has come to visit you. Maybe you're like an old friend of mine. He's a freshman in college and he's a good kid. Many would even say he was a great kid. And the first week on campus, he goes to a party and he gets drunk. And he gets picked up by the cops for public intoxication. He gets a ride in the back of the police car. Now he has a rap sheet of one public intoxication. And he lives in a small town. Do you know what it's like to live in a small town when you've done something? Everybody knows. Everybody's aware. And he has to walk down the street now with everybody knowing that he got picked up by the police. The shame, the guilt. Have you ever had dark days? Have you ever, ever had those days where you think, ah, I, I don't know that I could go on one more. I would just rather crawl under a rock than face anybody else. When dark days visit us, what should our response be? And when we're caught up in our own disobedience, uh, when we're caught up in our own uh, disguise, uh, when the truth of life comes to bear on us in a day, uh, what is it that God would have us do? Well, this morning, there, there's a guy in the Bible. He happens to be a king that happens to know what it's like to have a dark day come and visit him. His name is King Saul, and he's really coming to the darkest of days. We're going to find him in battle, and, and the ebb of his life is, is, is come calling. And I want you to hear, I want you to notice the response that he makes. I want you to see what he does. But I also want you to hear the hint of what God would have us do. I want you to see how Saul responds, but I also want you to see the hint, the clue that God gives us that when our dark day comes, that when some truth comes knocking on our door that we didn't anticipate, when our own disobedience catches us up in a dark day, I want you to see how God would have us respond. Would you turn with me, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 31? 1 Samuel chapter 31.
1 Samuel is going to be in the Old Testament toward the front of your Bible. First Samuel chapter 31. Faced with his darkest hour, Saul decides to take matters into his own hands. Faced with uh, a loss of significance, a loss of hope, Saul decides to take things on his own. And he makes a choice, and he responds in the darkest hour in a way that God wouldn't have us respond. Join me, would you, in verse 1. Now the Philistines, those are the enemies of Israel, fought against Israel. And the Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his son, sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Now, if you have been following along in this series, you're not surprised, we are not surprised that Saul is going to die. That's not the issue here. We're not surprised at all. In fact, we've kind of been looking toward it, because really, since chapter 16 and 17, when David is anointed as the new king because of Saul's disobedience in chapter 15, we have been anticipating that something bad is going to happen to Saul. There has been this constant contrast between David on one side and Saul on the other. David is good and Saul is bad. And it's consistent throughout. So we're not surprised that, uh, that this is happening. In fact, if you, if you were to turn over to, into chapter 28, uh, we have found in a very odd sort of way, uh, Saul is told again, uh, this time by the witch at Endor, which is kind of really weird. It's kind of a weird story. Uh, Saul goes to this witch and, and she somehow summons Samuel who comes back and says, oh yeah, bad things are coming. And Samuel to Saul says, hey, darkness is going to visit you very soon. Look at verse 17 if you want. Uh, In chapter 28, the Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to your neighbors, to David. Because you didn't obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And that is exactly what is happening. So we're not exactly surprised as the story has unfolded uh, that Saul finds himself in, in great peril. He's disobeyed the Lord. He's constantly taking matters into his own hands, and God has had enough. And this time, it's over. No more. Now, as Saul and his army are being overrun, just to make sure that the story continues and we recognize that David is coming along, 
In chapter 30, David is experiencing all of the victory that Saul is experiencing in defeat. Saul is being overrun. They're falling before the Philistines. Uh, But in chapter 30, David is overrunning everybody else. He is the one going to the plunder. And so once again, we see this contrast between Saul on one side and David on the other, but we're not surprised that something bad's going to happen. What may be a little more shocking is that faced with the inevitable, knowing what's going to happen, having been told what's going to happen, Saul decides to take matters into his own hands by taking his own life. He commits suicide. It's actually one of the only times in the Bible that we encounter this really touchy topic. Someone who takes his own life. What is it that we should do when when life visits its darkest hour? When there seems to be no hope? When we'd rather crawl under a rock? Well, Saul decides, he responds by saying, I'm going to take my own life. Look with me, would you, in verse 6, or verse 4, rather, through 6. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. His armor bearer was terrified and wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul had died, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died on the same day. Now some people, some commentators even, have suggested that Saul's act was one of courage. That Saul acted in the way that a king should act. Rather than to let the enemy have you, fall on your sword. Take the pill. Stab yourself. Make sure that no one, the enemy, doesn't get to you. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that it was an act of cowardice. Now, I have reasons for believing that, but, but I want you to see this scene Saul's not thinking about God. He's not thinking about God at all. He's thinking about himself. Do you notice that Saul here doesn't talk to God at all? There's no crying out to God. There's no uh, prayers on his knees before the Lord. Uh, Lord, would you please deliver me? Would you help me at least die with some dignity? No, no, no. Saul Saul is not thinking about anyone other than himself. He takes matters once again into his own hands and he decides that this is it. Now, people will take their own lives for all sorts of reasons. There's three primary reasons. One is uh, there's some intense hatred, some, uh, some sense of guilt or shame that's turned inward. And they've decided in that moment that that they can't go on, that they can't face the shame and the guilt that they carry around, so they turn it inward. Uh, Some decide that they will take their own life because they simply can't face the pain or, or some 
some sort of circumstance that they're in. Saul takes it for a third reason. There are times that people will take their own life because of a loss of significance. And all three of them deal with a loss of hope. They decide that it would be better to fall on their own sword because they've lost all hope. And for Saul, Saul, the the issue here for him is that he has lost what is most significant to him. And do you know what's most significant to Saul? What's most significant to Saul here is that he's the king. The most significant thing for Saul was that he was the king. Think about it for a moment. Saul would go out of his way throughout this entire book to make sure that everybody knew that he was the king. If you read a few chapters earlier, you recognize that there was this uh, battle and Saul gave like a ridiculous command, a ridiculous oath, and he said, uh, hey, we're going to go out and do this great battle, but I don't want anybody eating anything or drinking anything. And what does his son Jonathan do? His son Jonathan stops and, and sees some honey and, and takes it. And, and the, the, the story in the Bible uh, tells of Jonathan, uh, his eyes became wide and he became this valiant warrior. And And had it not been for all the rest of Saul's men, Saul would have killed his own son, Jonathan. Why? Because he has to be king. That's why. The thing that brings him most significance in the entire world is that he is the king. I mean, think about it. When God sends an evil spirit to be on Saul, the only one who can play music that eases his pain is David. And yet he has this inward hatred for David uh, to the extent that now he is stuck. There is one guy that can ease his pain in the entire world, and yet multiple times he tries to kill David. Why? Because the thing in the world that brings him most significance is that he is the king and not David. And so in his final moment, when he's overrun, when darkness is literally around him, when he knows what's going to happen, he decides to fall on his own sword because he's lost hope of anything else. His significance is gone. The thing in which he thought held all the significance in this world was now shattered. It was gone. Maybe there's some of you in this room who have experienced that sort of intense loss of significance. Maybe right now you're thinking of something in your own life. Maybe it was a a relationship with someone. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was uh, that you were a teenager and, and someone caught you doing something that no one ever would think that you would ever do. Maybe this morning you've come and in the back of your mind you're sitting on a lie and you know that someday that's going to come out and it's just going to, the shrapnel from that lie is just going to spread like you wouldn't believe. And you're thinking, what would I do? How would I respond? 
the one thing that I have put all of my eggs in that basket, the thing that gives me all of my significance is now gone. And here's the crazy part. The text tells us, the text tells us a little bit of why Saul does this. He said, draw your sword or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. He's not afraid to die. He's probably afraid of how he's going to die. Don't, don't let them have me. I'll, I, I want this dignity of trying to be king one last time. And yet the crazy part is he doesn't get any dignity Look at verse 7. Recognize what the Philistines do. It was common that if you had a battle, you would go and you would strip the soldiers down and you would take all of their weapons uh, for fear that the, the army would come back and retrieve all of their weaponry. Now, notice what happens when the Israelites, in verse 7, when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. Now the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Asherahs and fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. The thing that he wanted to try and keep, the thing that he thought he had control over, he had no control over whatsoever. And the dignity that he desired most was gone. And they make a religious claim here. The Philistines not only have Saul, but they believe they have Saul's God too. That's why they put his armor in the temples. So what will you do in your darkest day? What will you do when life comes at you? Maybe in your own disobedience, maybe in your own, uh, in your own place where you know to be wrong. When it's found out, what will you do? How will you respond? It doesn't go so well for Saul, but God gives us a hint. God gives us a clue of how we might respond well. Of how we can respond differently than Saul did. I, I want you to notice, would you, in verse 11, that God always reserves an opportunity for hope. Verse 11 when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all of their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. And then they took their bones and they buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And they fasted for seven days. 
God gives us a hint. God provides for us. You see, by taking matters into his own hands, by falling on his sword, by killing himself, Saul gives God no more opportunities to extend his mercy. He doesn't give God a window in which God can come through and provide for Saul one last time. Even though Saul has been disobedient, even though he's taken matters into his own hands uh, the entire time. Saul is still God's anointed. And I wonder if in verse 11 through 13, if what God is doing there isn't trying to say, Saul, there was an opportunity for you. Saul, if you had only waited, if you hadn't taken matters into your own hands, I would have given you reason for hope. Oh, you, you may still have died. I was still going to tear your kingdom from you and give it to David. But I would have allowed you to die as a warrior. I would have allowed you to die as a true king. There was hope. And you didn't allow me a window for mercy. You see, by killing himself, Saul closes the door on God's mercy. Now, some of you are thinking, who are these people from Jabesh Gilead? Where in the world did they come from? Uh, well, if you were to look back, and I'm not going to right now, but if you were to look back in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, uh, you would find that there is, well, there's a story here. Why in the world would the people of Jabesh Gilead so valiantly want to go through the night at great peril for themselves, go across to enemy lines, into enemy territory, where there's no doubt a great opportunity for harm to themselves to go and rescue the bodies of Saul and his sons? Why would they do that? Well, because in 1 Samuel 11, it was Saul who came to deliver them. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, uh, the people of Jabesh Gilead, they're being attacked by the Ammonites. And when Saul hears about his brethren, when he hears about family, uh, he goes to them and he makes sure, uh, filled with the Spirit of God, this would be Saul's one shining moment, and he would go to them and he would make sure that everybody knew in the Ammonite kingdom who Saul was. And he saves them. And he delivers them. And here now in chapter 31, Saul doesn't give them the same opportunity to deliver him. Instead, he closes the door on God's mercy. How is it that God would have us respond? What is it that he would have us do? Ladies and gentlemen, can I, can I just tell you this morning that if you're ever in that place, the greatest act of faith that you can take is to know that there's always hope. That even when you find yourself in your own disobedience and everything has been exposed, even in your disobedience, 
that when you turn your face to God, you may find that God is merciful. I think the reason that we have verses 11 through 13 is because God wanted to show Saul tremendous mercy. I think uh, that had Saul not fallen on his own sword, word would have gotten to the people of Jabesh Gilead and they would have delivered him through God's hand just like Saul had delivered them. So when the darkest day visits you, I'm going to ask you to respond in great faith. I'm going to ask you to turn the light on and to have hope and to know that God is merciful. That even when things couldn't get any possibly worse and you're stuck in your own disobedience, that there is hope. Because when the night gets darkest, they say that just before the dawn, the night is darkest. Look to the light because there is hope. Some of you are thinking, well, what happened to your friend? What happened to my friend? My friend was arrested for public intoxication. It was terrible. It was incredibly embarrassing. It was shameful. It was filled with all sorts of guilt. But instead of saying, I'm just going to go hide and never come out, or maybe even the unthinkable of taking his own life, it was a catalyst for him to say, God, I need your help. Today, that guy is an elder in his church. It's not because he's never sinned, not because he's never been disobedient, because he's found how to respond when he's most under pressure. Some of you in this room may experience a pressure in which you think I can't escape and the only escape is to try and take my life. Can I encourage you? Can I implore you? With God, there is always hope. With God, there's always hope because God is merciful. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, I, I pray, Lord, that uh, your spirit is present in the hearts of people. And Lord, I pray that no matter what we would encounter, no matter what may, we may come against, no matter what may be exposed, no matter, no matter what uh, uh, disobedience we may be stuck in, Lord, I pray that, that when we're in a dark hour, that we would turn to you and have great hope. Lord, I pray that we would crack the window and we would allow your mercy to flow through. Lord, I pray that in our moments of greatest need, that we would not take matters into our own hands. And instead, Lord, we would turn to you and to your people we would allow you to be merciful. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for your goodness. And we pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.